You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Christ is risen. This week's podcast picks up where last week's left off, with our rightful conviction as parents that God loves our children, not just in some generic way that he loves all the children of the world, but with a special covenant love that he has for the children of believers. I noted then that this simple observation taps into some pretty deep theology, something called covenant theology, and I gave you a heads up that I'd be returning to that theme in today's podcast. Now, not only is there some deep theology behind all this, but there's also some difference of perspective on all this within the Christian tradition. Uh, Not all Christians hold to what I'm calling covenant theology, and those who do don't even always agree on the particulars. So I'm going to need to give a kind of crash course on what the Bible teaches about being in covenant with God, as I understand it, and then look at the relevance of this for how we parent our children. All my listeners should know that I'm speaking here from a Reformed and Presbyterian perspective, and I make no bones about it. I think our tradition has something very valuable to offer to the broader church uh, in what I could call a covenantal perspective on parenting. Some time ago at Resurrection, I preached a sermon called, What is a Covenant Child? And since that sermon directly addresses the issues I'm taking up here in this parenting series, I've decided to incorporate the audio of it in this podcast. In that sermon, I first outline what I call the five points of covenant theology. Uh, Then I list three main implications of this covenant theology for how we view our children. And then you'll hear that I also include some final thoughts in that sermon on the implications of all this for parents who are grieved by wayward children. So after rerunning this sermon in today's podcast, it's my intention in next week's message then to address some questions that might arise as you listen today. So, That's what's ahead if you choose to listen on. There is an expression that's very commonly heard among Presbyterians. Uh, It's heard frequently at baptisms. It's heard in all kinds of contexts where parenting is being discussed. And it's sometimes heard in our prayers as a congregation as we pray for those who once had a place among us and made their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but they have turned away. And that expression that is very frequently heard among us is the expression, covenant child. A covenant child. That's what we use when we're baptizing infants in a Presbyterian church. That's what we are thinking about when we talk about parenting as Presbyterian parents. And very often in our prayers for wayward members of the church, we remind the Lord that this is a covenant child, what do we mean? What should we mean by that rather ubiquitous expression, covenant child? Well, that's been put to me recently, actually from more than one of you and in a variety of ways, and it's been a good reminder to me that 
Uh, it's important to think every now and then about things we say and say a great deal and have great significance. So another very ambitious attempt this morning to unpack what is a covenant child. And we're going to look first at the theology behind that expression, then the kind of parenting that ought to be connected to that expression, and then we're going to look at the kind of congregational prayer that should be inspired by that expression, covenant child. We'll need to make a haste to do all of that in the next few moments. So number one in seeking to answer this question, what is a covenant child? Number one, a covenant child is someone who enters the world as part of a community of people in a covenant relationship with God. That's the theology behind the expression covenant child. A covenant child is someone who enters the world as part of a community of people in a covenant relationship with God. Let me immediately add to that that it's not just by coming into this world by means of birth, but as we've been reminded, even in our confession of faith, the uh, institution of adoption is one that is a thoroughly biblical concept. And some children are covenant children not by birth, but by this wonderful institution of adoption. In both cases, they find themselves, apart from anything they've done, in a Christian home, and as we're going to be seeing, in a covenant relationship with God. Now, in order to unpack this, we need to do a crash course in covenant theology. There have been boatloads of books written on this, but don't worry, you're up for it. Five things you need to remember to understand this reality of a covenant relationship. Five points of covenant theology. Number one, a covenant is a relationship established by God, by grace. It's a relationship established by God, by grace. Now, there's a lot of things that are happening in Genesis 17 that are unique to Abraham and Abraham in his particular day. But we're going to be looking at Genesis 17 because uh, we believe that there are things revealed about the nature of covenants in Genesis 17 that then get repeated all throughout the scripture, even when the circumstances vary. Covenant is first... uh, not technically first, but most uh, and earliest revealed to us in Genesis chapter 17. And you, knew, you know how it begins. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and then to say the things that follow. How did Abraham get into this covenant with God? He did not sign, uh, uh, fulfill an application or a petition to God. Uh, it was uh, not by his initiative. It was God who graciously singled out Abram and initiated this relationship that God goes on to call a covenant. Now, folks, in these circles, we love to say that about God. We love to say that we were not looking for him. He came looking for us. We weren't friendly to him. In fact, we were enemies of his He came and befriended us. Now, he doesn't come and speak to us the way he did with Abram long ago, but he does come in a variety of providential ways and draw us out of all of the things that otherwise would uh, be drawing us away from him. And he brings us into this arrangement in all kinds of providential ways of covenant with him. As we'll see, in some cases, uh, we are actually... Uh, just finding ourselves in that relationship 
uh, by virtue of birth. Covenant is a relationship established by God in grace. Number two, in a covenant relationship, God binds himself and us by his word. When I use the word bind, I'm referring to something that's basic to this idea of a covenant. A covenant is not just any kind of relationship. A covenant is a relationship that involves certain commitments, certain responsibilities that arise from those commitments. It's not like a a casual friendship in the workplace. It's more like a marriage. A marriage is a covenant relationship because there have been words exchanged between those two people that bind them both to each other. How are we bound to God? Well, God says things to us by way of commandment. You see what he does right out of the gate in verse 1 with Abraham or Abram? At this point, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Abram, this is what you must do. And Abram is bound by the word of God. He's bound by the commands specifically of the word of God. But I've said God binds not just us, but he binds himself. How can God be bound? Well, only God can bind God, but he does that. And those words that he uses to bind himself are what we call promises. God promises certain things to those in covenant with him. He goes on to say in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is that spectacular word of promise that comes to Abraham. Abraham, you've got no children, but you're going to have so many children, you're not going to be able to count them. That's a wonderful promise, and God commits to it. He binds himself. God has to do what he says that he will do. And if you would like to take more time to look at this passage, you'll see that it breaks down into those two parts. God's promises are the theme of verses 4 to 8. What God binds himself to do for Abraham, verses 4 to 8. And then what he requires of Abraham is found in verses 9 to 14. And brothers and sisters, this should sound familiar because the whole of the Bible really does consist primarily in these two things. As our fathers put it, what we're to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. What God has promised and what he has commanded. The Bible is a covenant document. It's a covenant word and it contains these two things. So Abraham is bound by God's commands. God binds himself by his promises. Third, There are two possible human responses to being in covenant with God. Third of the five points of covenant theology is there are two possible human responses to being in covenant with God. Uh, I've emphasized God's sovereign, gracious initiative. Sometimes theologians talk about that as God acting unilaterally. All of a sudden, Abraham is being spoken to by God and he's being told, you're in covenant with me. And all those blessings come to him unsought because God is sovereignly, graciously entering into covenant. But for all that emphasis on God's sovereignty, the whole point of God entering into a covenant relationship with us is for us to respond to it. To respond to his grace of entering into covenant with us. 
And how would you respond to those two kinds of words that God uh, binds himself and us together with? Uh, You respond to his promises by believing them. You trust him to do what he said he would do. And how do you respond? Children, you know the answer to this. How do you respond to his commandments? God tells you to do something, your right response is to obey. That's the great covenant hymn, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And Abraham is the example par excellence of this, isn't he? God says, Abraham, I want you to leave. Go someplace that I'll, I'll tell you, you'll know. Leave your family, leave everything, your whole life. Go, move, because I'm going to make a great nation. Abraham obeys God. The reason he obeys, his obedience is rooted in this amazing fact. Abraham believed Yahweh. He trusted. He do what he said he would do. That, brothers and sisters, is what we call covenant Keeping That expression is found in verse 9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. That concept of keeping covenant with God is this whole Bible theme of responding to God's commands with obedience, his promises with faith. That's called covenant keeping. That's one possible human response to being in covenant with God. But there's another response. That's possible. It's a sad but very real response of hearing God's promises and not believing them. Of hearing his commands and not obeying them. Our text also identifies this other possible outcome of being in covenant with God In verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He is broken by covenant. That's the opposite of covenant keeping. It's covenant breaking. When God anticipates this possibility of someone not being obedient in the area of applying the sign of the covenant in Abraham's day, circumcision to himself or to his sons, when he anticipates that possibility of someone not following through with the command, it's a rather ominous word, especially if you know the rest of the story. Because there are a great many of Abraham's descendants who don't keep the covenant that God made with Abraham. Not just in refusing to be circumcised, but by refusing to be what circumcision represented, which was holy, as God first says to Abraham. Be, walk before me and be blameless. So there are two possible human responses to being in covenant with God. And fourthly, there are two possible ultimate outcomes of being in covenant with God. Fourth point of the five points of covenant theology. There are two possible ultimate outcomes of being in covenant with God. I said to you that God graciously enters into covenant with people in time and space. It's all of grace that we find ourselves in this covenant relationship where God has bound himself to us and bound us to him. It's all of grace, but that's just the beginning For those who keep his covenant. 
And then it's grace upon grace. Psalm 103 says it beautifully. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You find yourself in covenant relationship with God by providential circumstances beyond your control and ability to contrive. And God is saying things to you by way of promise and you believe. And he's saying things to you by way of command and you obey. Then grace upon grace is your experience. God brings you from that place of being in covenant relationship with him into that ultimate relationship, which is a saving relationship that lasts forever and ever. One possible outcome of being in covenant with God is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, being there forever and ever with the God who makes covenant with his people. That is the glorious outcome being in covenant with God. But I said there's two. There's a second possible outcome of being in covenant with God. And of course, it's the outcome for those who find themselves in that covenant relationship, promised wonderful things, commanded many things, and, and they rebel. They say, I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. I don't know that he's going to do what he says. I don't want to do what he's told me to do. And the Bible tells us that the outcome of that covenant relationship is a very awful, unique kind of wrath and judgment for holy God. This finds itself expressed in the Ten Commandments in a passage you know very well. God says you should not bow down to those false gods or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, he's saying this to his covenant people, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He goes on to say, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You hear the two possible outcomes of being in covenant with God? There's two possible outcomes. God signals them even there in those tablets of stone that he wrote with his own finger. If you know the Old Testament, you know that this becomes a necessary theme, particularly in the pages of the prophets. Israel is again and again called by God to return to him and to love him and obey him because they're his treasured covenant people. And if they do not, they will fall under a kind of wrath that is the wrath of covenant love rejected. And in such a case, covenant relationship for such leads not to salvation. It leads to hell. And I have to add, it can lead to the hottest place in hell. That's my way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Remember, Jesus is preaching and offering himself as Messiah to the covenant people of God in Capernaum in this case. And they have nothing to do with him. They despise him. And he says something that's 
terrifying. He says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. He's saying you're you're rejecting me. You're going to fall into the judgment of God. That judgment's going to be worse for you, covenant people though you are, because to whom much is given, much is required. And you've rejected the love of your covenant God. Fifth point, the summary of covenant theology is the children of those in covenant with God are included in that relationship with God. It's very clear in the account of the covenant with Abraham. Again, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting God, covenant rather, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Abraham, you're to have the sign of the covenant. Your household's to have the sign of the All the male members of your household and every baby boy that comes eight days after birth, they're to have the same sign you have. Why do you all share the same sign? Because you're all in covenant with me. And what is it that lies behind this determination of God to uh, share his covenant arrangement with parents uh, with their children? Is it because God is like us and finds the children of those he loves also very lovable? Well, I, I think there is something to that. You love me You're predisposed to love my kids. When I love you, I'm predisposed to love your kids. You felt the way this works. That's not actually God like us. That's us like God. God loves our children because he loves us. But there's something much, much deeper. God's whole covenant making in the world is serving a glorious long-term agenda. God's first command to his image bearers was to multiply and fill the earth and it was to be such that his glorious image bearers would reflect his glory throughout the earth and so when sin breaks that and instead the world is being filled with those who are in rebellion against God, God sets out in redemptive grace to reverse that, to undo that. That's what's behind this principle that when he makes covenant with a guy named Abram, he's looking way past Abram, past him. To his sons and his sons' sons and his sons' sons' sons and their families and the children that follow them because God has a kingdom agenda behind his covenant making. So, when God comes and makes covenant, he's looking way down the line, as we'd say. And it's a conspicuous thing. But as you go through the scriptures and see where God uh, is renewing, we believe it's actually renewing this covenant with Abram in the subsequent places in the Bible. When he does that, kids come up. This principle is reaffirmed. But brothers and sisters, because our children are in covenant with God, with us, it does place a great responsibility on Christian parents. Uh, Jumping ahead to chapter 18, God is speaking of Abram, and he says in verse 19 of the next chapter, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice 
so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. I've chosen Abraham so that he will command his children. He'll say in that wide variety of ways, children, you do what I'm doing. You respond to God the way I'm responding to God. Obey God. And the most basic act of obedience is to trust him when he promises us good. That's why, brothers and sisters, godly parenting, faithful parenting, has such a vital part in our covenant keeping. It's not enough that our children be born into this covenant relationship. It's not enough that they have the sign of the covenant placed upon them. We believe baptism, the New Testament, to replace circumcision. They have to be led to the covenant God again and again and again by their parents so that their response to that covenant God is like the response of their parents of their own faith and their own obedience. Children of those in covenant with God are included in that relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, uh, we haven't said everything there is to say about covenant theology. We've said a whole lot, and I think you actually could call yourself an amateur covenant theologian. If you get those five things that lie behind, in theological terms, that expression, child of the covenant, covenant child. I'll just sum it up. Covenant relation, pardon me, a covenant is a relationship graciously established by God with men and women and their children, binding both parties with divine promises and commandments and resulting in great blessing for those who believe and obey and judgment for those who do not. Now, this might be a good time to acknowledge that There are Christian traditions who don't use this expression that is very common in our circles, a covenant child. And it's not because they would disagree, in most cases, with anything I've said thus far about the nature of covenant as it pertains to the Old Testament. My Baptist brothers would, in most cases, I think, agree with all that I've said thus far about being in covenant with God in the Old Testament. But they are convinced, based on their reading of certain passages of Scripture, that there's something radically different about the new covenant. And in this particular way, you're no longer, our brothers would say, no longer in a covenant relationship with God simply because you've been born or adopted into a believing uh, parent's family. Uh, This is different in the new covenant. The only ones in covenant with God are those who have personally believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Covenant is now a synonym for salvation. You see that? It's not the bigger thing that I've just presented, but it's actually a synonym for salvation. A covenant relationship is a saving relationship. That's not what we've seen so far. That's what many of our brothers would say very earnestly. That is why... They only are willing to baptize those who are of a certain age that they can testify their own personal faith. Now, there's a couple of responses to this, and 
Uh, I'll just share with you at this point, I was going to preach this sermon last Sunday morning, and then I realized that Pastor Rosser was preaching on my topic in the evening. If you hadn't heard that passage in Luke 18 that he preached on, uh, the Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, censuring his disciples for not allowing the children to come to him and be blessed, and saying of such as these are the, is the kingdom of heaven, you need to go listen to that sermon, because it provides very ably the first response we make to our our dear brothers in the Baptist tradition, and that is the New Testament doesn't take this away, it only reaffirms it. Listen to that sermon. Listen as Pastor Rosser makes reference to things that Peter does and that Paul says that emphasize children continue, just like in the Old Covenant, to be included in this covenant relationship with God. I actually think something even Uh, more significant, or which lies underneath that of great significance, is the testimony of the New Testament that there remains two possible outcomes to being in covenant with God. Not just one. If covenant is only, if covenant is only, if, if it is synonymous with salvation, there's only one outcome. It's blessing. But the New Testament continues To emphasize, you can have this covenant relationship with God. You can be among the covenant people of God. You can have certain uh, privileges and promises specifically made to you and sealed by the sign of the covenant and by unbelief and disobedience fall under what we call the curses of the covenant. And time won't allow me to go through all of those passages. Perhaps in another occasion... Hebrews 10 is one of the most vivid, speaking of that possibility of those who have uh, entered into all the experiences of God's blessing in the covenant community, yet turning away, the writer of Hebrews says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are Old Testament quotes. The writer of Hebrews is applying to New Testament congregation, affirming that your five points stand. In the new covenant era, which we find ourselves by God's grace in covenant with him. Just to clarify before I or as I transition to the parenting piece. When Presbyterians baptize babies, it's not as if we're saying, whew, now they're saved. Got that over with. We see that both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God includes children with their parents in this thing we've defined as a covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship is by God's grace... And by our faithful response as parents and ultimately the response of our children themselves in faith and repentance to lead to an everlasting saving relationship. But it ain't always so. We know this. We recognize the two edges of this glorious thing we call covenant. That's the theology. Congratulations. You have just sat through a whole seminary course on covenant theology. Let's a bit more practically now consider how is our parenting 
connect to this. And I'm not now just singling out those who are involved in active parenting, but the whole congregation of Matthew's OPC is involved in uh, the parenting endeavor. You're taking your place, no matter who you are, alongside of parents in this congregation. How does this theology affect our parenting? What does it mean that we have covenant children in our midst? These three things. Number one, we view our children as loved by God from the start. And part of his covenant family with us. In covenantal terms, our children have the same relationship with God that we do. We have the same outward, objective, uh, word-based relationship that we do. God loves them like he loves us. He's blessing them in this community of God's people like he's blessing us. And God is calling them in a daily way to trust him and obey just like he's calling us to. We call them covenant children because we believe that they're born into, adopted into, this love relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, this gives us these rock-solid reasons for doing what Christian parents, no matter who you are, want to do instinctively do, I would say. We tell our children from the very beginning, God loves them. We describe all the good things in their lives as signs of His special love for them. We encourage them to talk to Him. That's called prayer. Uh, We encourage them to talk to Him as their Father who's in heaven. We insist that they are with us as we enjoy fellowship with God because they too can enjoy fellowship with God as they're with us in our homes and right now sitting next to us in our pews. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't a relationship with God depend first on our children doing something? Repenting and believing? Don't we need to wait until we see evidence of that before we encourage them to think they have a relationship with God? The answer is, in a word, no. Our children are brought into that love relationship with God long before they even have a clue. That's the glory of it, in fact. They're in that covenant relationship. Whether they believe or not, that covenant relationship will lead to salvation in all of its eternal dimensions as they respond to that covenant relationship with faith and repentance. So that's our great desire it's to say to our children, not, you need to trust Jesus so you can have a relationship with him. We, need, we are saying to them, you should trust because you have a relationship. You have a covenant relationship with God, so trust him. He loves you. He's made these promises to you. He calls you to love him with all your heart. So because you have that grace, respond to it with love and obedience. That is to say, Christian parents of the Presbyterian tradition don't ever hold their kids at arm's length and say, hmm, not sure if you should call God your father. Hmm, not sure if you should be so free with God uh, and just coming to him in prayer. Not sure you should be right here with us as we do what saints are called to do, which is to worship God. No, we never, ever hold them at arm's length. We include them because they're part the same covenant relationship with God that we have. We say, you love God. Kids, you love God because he first loved you. Second, building on that, we treat our children as disciples of Christ. From the start, 
What is a disciple of Christ? Well, there's an objective marker of it, and there's a subjective process involved in it. What's a disciple of Christ? Well, Christ made disciples, and he made disciples by means of baptism. And baptism was the first objective outward sign of discipleship. It showed that that was a person who was to be numbered among the followers of Jesus Christ. But disciples didn't just, they didn't just happen by virtue of that right. They were uh, the recipients of an ongoing process of being taught the ways of Christ. Disciples are those who are being discipled. Christian parents and Christian congregations of the Presbyterian tradition view all of the baptized members of the covenant community as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptize them as soon as they're good and presentable. And then from then on, Not even waiting until they say, I'm sorry, could you clarify? Not even waiting until they can interact with us. We are teaching them all that Christ has commanded us in keeping with the Great Commission. And so we believe that there's such a thing as a Christian family in the fullest sense of the word. Our families are Christian families in which each member is part of the flock following the shepherd, each one all together learning daily how to be like Christ. And brothers and sisters, making an observation now, from my experience and from my observed experience, what this frequently, I would say, uh, usually means is that our children will have the blessed experience of being a little fuzzy about when they first believed in Jesus. Is it okay to be a little fuzzy when you first believed? Well, it is if you've been invited and encouraged and provided the means of grace to trust Jesus from back in the foggy past of your pre-intellectual days. Yes, it is actually a very good and appropriate Thing. Now, some of us have not grown up in that context, or if we have, we've grown up in a Christian home, but there was an experience we look back on as a rather dramatic conversion experience. Praise be to God. You are like the uh, Apostle Paul back when his name was Saul. Praise be to God. But don't insist that your covenant children have the same experience that you had when by your faithfulness as a parent, you've been leading them as little lambs. In the shadow of the shepherd, from the very beginning, and believing in them, believing in him, and obeying him, has come by grace to be as natural as breathing. Third implication for a parenting of this expression, covenant child, we call our children to live up to who they are as members of the covenant. Parents, you're the pastors of your kids, par excellence. And you're to, take a, uh, you're to take your cue from the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul wrote to covenant communities, that's what you'd call, that's another name for the visible church of Jesus Christ. When he wrote to, for example, the church in Corinth, this covenant community, they're all together, baptized members of the congregation, 
he speaks of them and he talks to them and he charges them and admonishes them and encourages them all as those who are saints. That's a covenant term. A saint is someone who's set apart from the world in covenant with God. But doing that only gives him more leverage when he writes knowing that some of the saints are not acting like saints. Remember how he begins 1 Corinthians? The church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those set apart is what that word means. It's where we get the word saint. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To the holy ones who really better be holy. You hear what he's doing? He does it throughout his epistles. He appeals to the covenant people of God to live up to, inwardly and outwardly, their identity as those who are in covenant with God. And it's not just just that he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, some of you are not for real, but I'm going to call you saints because I don't want to be judgmental. No, they have this objective identity as God's covenant people, and in light of that, his exhortation is even stronger. You've been set apart by the blood of the covenant in Hebrews terms. And this is what is right and fitting for you. And this is not what is right or fitting. Some people call that covenantal leverage. Paul puts it, walk worthy of your calling. Viewing our children as members of the covenant doesn't take away from parents their ability to appeal to their potentially wayward sons and daughters. It equips them with an even greater argument. Son, daughter, you're of the most privileged on the planet. And with that privilege comes high responsibility. To much is given, much is required. Matthew Henry had a godly father named Philip Henry, and he spoke of this as grabbing our kids by their baptism. So, oh, no, you don't. You're a Christian. You act like a Christian. Just a brief excursus on how we use terms like Christian, disciple, saint. Even the word believer in the Bible can be used a couple of ways. It can refer to what is true of someone in an objective sense, what they have Uh, had uh, happened to them, what they themselves have done. Uh, A Christian is someone who's a recognized member of the community of the followers of Christ. In that sense, our children from the day they're baptized can be regarded as Christians. That objective sense of the word. They're not Philistines. They're Israelites. They're not pagans. They're Christians. They're not enemies of Christ. They're Disciples of Christ. And as I say to the children in the uh, communicants class, it's not enough to be a Christian outwardly. You have to be a Christian on the inside to go to heaven. Well, let me say just a few more things about a third interest that I have in taking up this subject. 
talked about the theology behind this expression, a covenant child. We talked about the view of children and the parenting we all do of our children in light of that expression. But how about our prayers as a church for those who are covenant children and they are wayward? Number three, a covenant child is someone for whom there's special hope no matter how far they stray. You can be turning in your pew Bibles to Hosea 11, page 899. I want to read a passage from the book of Hosea, but as you turn, let me say, I have some words of comfort for us as a congregation as we carry the pain of our wayward children close at heart. But I need to say a couple of things to be very clear before I bring those words of comfort. When we speak of covenant promises to parents, we do need to be careful. God has not given unconditional guarantees to us as, our, as parents that our children will go to heaven. I hope you've seen thus far, God's promises are conditioned. You have to believe in order to receive what's promised. And when God makes covenant promises that he will be God to us and to our children, those promises come to fruition unto salvation when both we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and when those children themselves lay hold of that promise with faith and obedience. Uh, There is too much in the Bible of example of wayward covenant children to think that somehow along the way we got an unconditional guarantee that our children will go to heaven just because they're our children. But having clarified that, brothers and sisters, we are right to recognize that the whole point of God establishing us as Christian families and giving to us by His merciful providence children is because He loves to have children who follow their parents in embracing Him in faith. That's His agenda. From the beginning, when He told Adam, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, He tips His hand to this in the days of the prophets Malachi 2, speaking about the marriages of the, of the covenant people of God. He says, did he not make them, husband and wife, one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? He doesn't say that you'll be happy and live ever after as a, 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 a blessed couple. What was he seeking? Godly offspring. Oh, he does love us, does want our happiness. Marriage is for that end first, and yet... God is saying that he's after children who follow in the footsteps of their parents so that he can bless to the thousandth generation those who fear him. That's his real desire. And here's our comfort. There were parents, those who are locked in love, stepping through the pain of wayward children in this congregation. Here is our Great hope as we pray for them. The God who makes covenant with us and our children suffers long and loves long.
covenant breakers. I don't know how you think of God when you pray for our wayward children. I want you to think of God the way Hosea chapter 11 speaks of God. And I want you to recognize as I read this that you could in a certain sense say the whole Bible is about God's covenant love for covenant breakers. That that's his posture, his present heavenly posture towards those who've been brought into the covenant by his gracious providence and have turned away from him and for whom our hearts break as we see them breaking covenant. Here's his heart. Here's his heart. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now thus far you hear in God his posture towards covenant breakers, a a great sorrow, a great sadness, a love that has been unrequited, and as a result, judgment, wrath. You are familiar with this in the Old Testament prophets, but... It's not the end of the story. And that's not all you should think of in the heart of God as you pray for our wayward covenant children. Look at verse 8. As if God pauses and, and then blurts this out. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. What? To what? To their becoming as if they're not specially loved by him. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Which which is it? Is he angry at them or is his compassion towards them? It's both. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. That's our prayer for our wayward children. Verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Here's your appeal. Here's your argument with the God of heaven and earth as you pray for our wayward children. Not this can't happen because you promised it never would. No. No, his promises have to be embraced by faith. Rather, 
This is a child that bears your name. It's by your own good providence. This child came into this world in a covenant relationship with you. He bears the sign of that in his baptism. And he's borne all the evidence of it in his life. This is a young man. This is a young woman, Lord, that you love more than even I do. You're grieved more than even it grieves And why do I depict God in those terms in light of passages like Hosea 11? Because when we pray, especially pray for such poignant things, we have to pray believing that this is the kind of God we're talking to. That we are able to appeal to something in his heart. That in this mystery way, that prayer is part of his working out his purposes will cause him, I don't hesitate to say, To relent like he did with Israel and restore them. You say, Pastor, God is sovereign. He has the hearts of our wayward children in in mind. Why does he why is he ever sad if he's sovereign? And my answer is I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery. It is one of the greater mysteries. Why it is, how it is. God utterly sovereign, as I preached just recently, has the heart of every sinner in his hand. Why would he ever be sad? Yet there is this testimony written large in God's word. He waits to do good for those who will humble themselves. And yes, we pray because we know that just like Israel would fly like the birds back to the place that they knew they needed to be, the house of God. Our way where children will come as he hears our prayers and as he himself quickens their hearts and they return. I close this sermon about what it is to be a covenant child with the word to the covenant children in this place. And I don't just have in mind the young ones. There's a certain sense in which I'm a covenant child even though I'm in the second half of my century of life, children, being a covenant child is the best thing in the world. It's the best to have from the very beginning of your life. God covering you up with his testimony of love for you. It's the best thing in the world. And there's some really good things. And I have some close seconds, but I still put this at the top. To never have a day in your life when you didn't know this God. He wasn't protecting you and caring for you. It's the best thing. Unless you don't think so. Unless you don't think so. Children, if you ever come to a place where you are just not so sure, it's so great being a child of Christian parents, always having been a member of the church. You find it confining and restricting and tedious to keep hearing about God. If it ever for you becomes something other than the best thing in the world, well, then it will become the worst thing in the world.
being a member of the covenant, turning away from a God who loves his covenant people, that's the worst thing. There's nothing worse in this world than that. Which is it for you? You know it's the best thing in the world if you yourself think it to be so. That shows that God has given you a sense of wonder that, why me? Why did I get to be a member of this home and church and Christian community? Why me? It's all of grace. And as long, children, as you have that testimony, as it is mine, it's the best thing in this world. Amen. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.